Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Once and Future Nerd. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about Shaker and Spoon. Do you want a cost-effective but classy way to wash down some one-alarm rancher stew? Or maybe you just want a little social lubrication while you're in a new, unfamiliar place and need to figure out how to pit two rival gangs against each other for your own material gain? Well, Shaker and Spoon is a subscription cocktail service that helps you learn how to make handcrafted cocktails. Every box comes with enough ingredients to make three different cocktail recipes developed by world-class mixologists. All you need to do is buy one bottle of that month's spirit, and you have all you need to make 12 drinks at home. Our listeners can get $20 off their first box at shakerandspoon.com slash T-O-A-F-N. That's shakerandspoon, spelled out, dot com slash T-O-A-F-N. Also, if you want to help us make this show and get some cool rewards for yourself in the process, you can do that at patreon.com slash onceandfuturenerd. I want to specifically thank Swordmother, Orlando, and Sarah G for their patronage this month, so shout out to them and to all of our generous patrons whose support makes this show possible. Part four of this chapter is going to come out on April 30th. Um, This chapter is a five-parter, so we're not quite at the finale yet, but I will talk to you next month, and in the meantime, enjoy part three. Once and Future Nerd, Book Two, Myth Made Flesh. Chapter Nine, A Handful of Bodyguards. Part Three by O. Carciente and Christian T. Kelly Madera. take you away for a bit from Regan's new court, and for now, to the constabulary of the White Forest. I truly am sorry for your loss, dear. If you like, we have a small bereavement room where you may... You're sorry. That's it. You, you can't do anything. Built into one of the sturdiest trees in the forest, the constabulary was where all elves were taught to go when faced with a danger they could not handle themselves. Well, from what you've described, it all sounds like a tragic accident, from which you were fortunate to survive, I might add. Have you not been listening to me? <laughs> Why, of course I have, child. Very closely. Your house girl mistook poisonous mushrooms for benign ones and cooked the former into a stew. Sadly, your parents ate the stew, which proved fatal, and you did not. Hence, here you sit drawn breath. The house girl, realizing her error too late, decided to end her own life. Whether to escape shame or punishment, I cannot say, but she explained it all plainly in the note that you yourself read. I told you, 
If Ruby made that stew once, then she made it 10,000 times. She would have never made so glaring an error. I fear we often give the Memiet too much credit at our own peril. All the latest science shows they learn by mere rote rather than by deduction as you or I might. We cannot know what went through the poor girl's head when she grabbed the wrong mushrooms, only that obviously for some reason she did. But what of the four ruffians who entered our house unbeckoned and unannounced? He said make sure it was done right. Those were his exact words. Hmm. Admittedly, that doesn't fit with the suicide letter. I should say not. Is it possible your parents contracted to have some work done in the house? Do you have a supervisor I might speak with? <laughs> no, dear. Now, about that bereavement room. Come. I swear on all that is... It's called lubrication! And its sources in nature are plentiful! God! Anyway, at this moment, a lower-ranking constable entered the small room and handed the higher-ranking constable a note. And then, having processed what she'd read, the senior constable looked at Yellow Dick with a focus and clarity she'd not shown at any point prior in this interview. Consciously or not, Yellow Dick perceived this change and shifted uncomfortably in her seat. Child, forgive me. I've been distracted. Perhaps, at a distance, I have missed things that you would have noticed up close. Why don't you tell me, calmly and in your own words, what you think happened? Well, naturally, I suspect foul play. Hmm. And is there anyone you think might have wanted to hurt your parents? What your father means to say is that we now have an enemy in Reloti, not to mention that dreadful ball syndic, and both of them are the kind whose ambitions far outpace their consciences. We must be exceedingly careful. Child, it's very important that you tell me everything you can, so that I may help you, of course. You know, now that you m mention it, I think I might use that bereavement room. It just comes and goes in waves, you know? Yes, of course, but I am very curious about what... <laughs> Right this way, dear. As the two constables escorted Yludic down a narrow corridor in the constabulary, the young elf found it quite easy to summon tears. For though her motives for crying were at least somewhat disingenuous, the grief she drew upon was real and fresh enough. Just in here, dear. Thank you. And if you need anything, you needn't even call. Simply open the door and we shall hear it. Yelodic surveyed the room around her. Though natural light was abundant via a hole in the tree's trunk far, far above her head, there was no clear route of egress save for that ominously loud door. She looked to the small table at the room's centre, where provisions for the grieving were provided 
a basket of lily-white silken handkerchiefs, a tasteful candle, a small tray of rich but simple biscuits, and a pitcher of water with slices of fruit, and some pleasant-smelling ointment concocted to restore moisture to one's hands, which perhaps she is clever enough to realise is a form of lubrication. And there it is. Yeah, she got it. Now, having never lotioned the hinges of a door before, Yellow was not entirely sure how much was necessary, so she played it safe and used the entire container. It was a rather large container. And once she had run out, she said a short, silent prayer and pulled, not too swiftly and not too slowly, on the door. It opened with merciful silence. And Yellow Dick tiptoed away down the corridor. As you'll recall, Maguire had made a deal with a great and ancient dragon that he would answer their questions in exchange for quills of the dragon's plumage to unmake his many terrible injuries. With it, Maguire could return to his previous form before the dark magic of Renault had raised him from the dead. What work did you do in order to achieve this body? A lot of things. Training to be a good soldier. Certain medicines. A surgery. A great deal of pain, all told. The work to become a man. Every man holds a great forest in his heart. To keep it alive, he must sometimes burn its driest parts. The elves made my position harder also. I only hope that with your help I can get back what they took from me. The tree folk, you mean? How did they take your body from you? And why? Ah. Bit of a long story, but I suppose. I fought against them when they came to Yarden. Successfully enough to be made an example of. When at last our army was defeated, they gathered its leaders, including me. They brought us to our Queen's Great Hall. Then they put swords through us, not to kill us, but to keep us pinned down to our seats. And then they burned us alive. Once the fires had gone out, they left us in our seats but piled earth on top of the entire hall. We were hidden but not buried, forgotten by our descendants in this world, yet unable to join our ancestors in the world beyond. <laughs> but the joke's on them, it seems. Bastards should have known that which you never properly bury never properly dies. If you cannot die in this form, why would you choose a form that can die? What I have now is a half-life. I do not feel the warmth of the sun. If I had a lover, I could not feel the tenderness of his touch. On the way here, a bear trap nearly tore my leg off. And I was angry at the inconvenience, but I felt no pain. It is much like when I was young and felt myself both puppet and puppeteer. I am not alive. I am just not properly dead. 
I would like to be a man once more, and not a monster of Renault's. You deem your life yours, alongside your body. Without the one, you cannot have the other. Do you not, O Venerable One? I do. But I do not think we share our reasons for it. Rivelings have been hunted and killed. Perhaps even treated as cattle by their own, and by the tree folk. But I do not know that their hair has been stolen to make rope. That their nails and teeth have been displayed as a sign of prowess. That to make weapons from their bones, or to kill their wandering young, is cause for adulation. Maguire swallowed. He looked up at the dragon's enormous body, and down at his own injured limbs. He pressed his lips together for a moment before speaking. It occurs to me, O Venerable One, that I have not asked for your name. The dragon's eyes grew, and their great head pulled back their eyes scanning Maguire. Nor have I asked yours. My kind do not much value names. They come and go like your tongues and cuts of cloth. My people have always cared more for their names. Will you indulge me? Very Well, it is good to meet you, Ursalax. I am Kian Maguire of the Blue Elk Forest. I thank you for your kindness in giving me freely what so many have sought to take from you. Ursalax's massive eyes crinkled a little, and their lips quirked up at Maguire's words, revealing a few more of their enormous teeth. You are welcome, Rivoli. I care for the sanctity of my body because I care to be seen as a whole, and not as parts. But to continue my questioning, it seems you seek something more. You mentioned the work to become a man, your desire to be a man once more. Do all men do as you have? Maguire tilted his head in thought for a moment, grateful for the question. I suppose it depends on what you refer to. No man does and lives the same as any other. There are things most do, and things fewer have done, and I have done my share of both. In some ways my path was rarer and rougher. Most men do some sort of work to become so in their lives. Why is it so important to you? I am not sure. Why is it not important to you, O Venerable One? Lack of habits, perhaps. I do not speak to rivelings often. They keep changing the meaning of things. I remember once women were the ones with the long flowing clothing. Then 
by all, at which point women were the ones with the flowers, the ones that wear colours, the ones that don't, and men were the ones who went to battle unless there was peace, in which case the battle was cruel and ought not to be done. Oh. Truly, river folk change their tongue and fashion so often. I have given up on keeping track. It all seems unfounded in meaningful principle. You make a good point, O Venerable One. We often ignore how similar we are, and where there are few differences, we expand or create them. You have no reason to care for these distinctions. And yet you do. Enough that you would bargain with me for it. Why? I am not sure myself. In a way it is something I have had to discover I cared about. I found myself yearning for things others did not. And when I spoke to my sisters and cousins they found it odd. My brothers and uncles understood. I was curious gravitating towards their habits, which is to be expected of some girls, of course, but the manner in which I wished to be grew further from them with time. I remembered the horror I felt when it came time for my first blood. I wished I could fight a thousand battles in its stead. My eldest sister laughed, said I would never be a mother. She meant to, to mock me, but... Words cannot express the relief I felt at the moment. As I grew, I could make more choices. I made the ones that would give me a body I would bargain with a dragon for. I see. So you chose to do the work to become a man? Aye. It was common enough in my time, before the elves came. I fear it is less so now that they have built the world they wanted out of mine. The dragon watched Maguire with sharp, careful eyes, considering him. I believe that is seven quills you owe me, venerable Irsalax. You are correct. In a slow, deliberate motion, the dragon moved their tail towards Maguire's frame resting its tip between the two of them, so that he may pluck the six quills. With gentle care, Maguire separated a single quill and pulled at it. When it proved much sturdier than he had at first anticipated, Maguire took out a small knife and began to carefully cut off six individual quills. Having them in his possession, he was suddenly much more at ease. The dragon moved their tail closer to their claws once he was done. This will heal my wounds? No. At least not by itself. What else do I need? In an ancient tablet hidden away within the depths of this mountain, lay the instructions to prepare a powerful potion of dragon's plumage and mountain's blood, of glowing silks and cave flowers' bud, it must be prepared in darkness, boiled for hours, and drunk through the back of a skull. And where is this great tablet to be found, O oh, Venerable One? Just on the path, second on the left. 
I see. And may I? Yes, yes, of course. I'll show you the way. Does our deal stand, O oh venerable one? Seven may not be enough. It does. I wish to know more. And so, as Ursalax and Maguire ventured deeper into the caves, they came upon the ancient tablet. Ursalax read out the recipe to Maguire, and they set out to find the first of the ingredients, a pinch of cave flowers bud. How much is a pinch? About so much as you can hold between two fingers. My fingers or your fingers? Dragon fingers. So is that a fistful? Ursalax grabbed a handful of pebbles from the nearby underground river between two of their massive claws. It was perhaps as much as two human fistfuls. I see. Cave flowers bud, meaning that rock formation. The dragon nodded. Maguire climbed up the stone and began to hack at the cave flower with a spear he had found amidst the dragon's hoard. Long, arduous work for several minutes resulted in the stone finally cracking and part of the formation falling off. Sadly, the part that fell off was much smaller than what was required of a dragon's pinch. As Maguire prepared to continue to hack at the formation, Ursalax held up a claw, prompting him to pause. Ursalax then stared at him for a long moment and simply flicked their claws at the formation, prompting the rest of it to fall and providing much more than the necessary pinch in the process. <sighs> Sometimes I overestimate Riveling's abilities. I apologize. It is a great honor to be overestimated by a dragon. They continued to wonder, gathering what ingredients they needed for the potion. Salax, given your size and how they grow narrow in some parts. No. If needed, I can always carve out a path for myself. Then why? I do not know. I suppose since I made my oath, I have been in a more contemplative mood. I see. Now we turn left, and it should be just ahead. A suspicion began to nag at Maguire, but he chose not to voice it. Instead, they arrived at the location of the glowing silks. While the caves had featured the creatures here and there thus far, the one Nersilax had guided into was massive and incredibly beautiful. Little dots of light littered the ceiling like shivering, blinking stars in the night sky, their light falling gently down towards them as the silks dangled downwards. The river that flowed leisurely through the cave reflected their lights in the water, its gentle current blurring the light from the glowworm silks. The entire cave had a gentle flow to it, lighting the two of them in pale blue hues. Maguire approached the cave wall, and finding it much too slippery to climb, he glanced back at Ursalax. Venerable Ursalax, 
Would it be possible for you to gather the silks so that I might collect them in the container? Maguire nodded and looked up at the star-like beauty of the glowing silkworm's work. Could you perhaps lift me to it? After a moment, Ursulax offered one of their massive limbs to Maguire and lifted him up towards the ceiling of the cave. With a gentle hand, Maguire pulled out one of the crystals they had already gathered and began rolling it gently around the watery, sticky threads until he had gathered enough to cover the crystals in the container and no more. Once it was done, Ursalax's great appendage lowered Maguire down, and they began guiding the way out of the cave. Maguire lagged behind, staring at the star-like twinkling lights of the insects, with the same wonder that so many other creatures had before being drawn too close and trapped by the silk's viscous grip to be eaten by their makers. As the cave entrance approached, he stole one last glance at the pulsing blue lights and stepped outside to follow Ursalax to the next ingredient. Thank you for showing me such beauty, mighty Ursalax. I suppose. I can't recall the last time I paused for any reason. Even with my unnatural long life, there is much of worth in this world that preceded me and will survive me. And perhaps even you, O oh venerable one, I find that reminder welcome. I am glad it is a comfort to you. Have you any further questions for me? Oh, I do, yes. Thank you for reminding me. I used to have much keener philosophical inquiries. One time I spoke with a communitarian fellow for twelve years, and could easily recall which points he had made in a winter or a summer. Has this also changed since you took your oath, O Venerable Ursalax? I suppose I have not had much opportunity to speak with anyone else. Over the past few hundred years, other sentient beings shun my company. And I shun them in turn. I see. Oh, enough of my sorry state of affairs. We must turn left for the mountains, blood. If you were to travel up from these proceedings several hundred feet as the mole burrows, you would find that winter had at last come in full to the Black Mountains. Conditions were cruel and miserable, almost as cruel and miserable, in fact, as the two creatures to whom we now turn our gaze. I can see the cave, but it's nearly snowed over. We'll never be able to dig through. Dig through? No, milk through. Now there's a thought. I never claimed to be a fire mage. Don't you worry. I know me a spell or two. Do you reckon you can cast the air from this here staff? Shouldn't be much different from the way you're managing to speak. Yes, that should be quite simple. Well then, just point me towards the cave. I'll light the tip of the staff, and you push the air. Almost effortless. I'll say. This here staff of yours is as good a conduit as it is a vessel. You molded it well, young fella. 
Yes, this collaboration continues to pay dividends. Well, after you, I'm afraid I must insist. And now we return once more to the tale of Maguire and Ursalax. After having obtained the rest of the ingredients, Maguire set about following the instructions on the tablet as carefully as he could. The two of them had found their way to one of the cavernous mountain's openings, and now cooked the potion in the night air. There, Ursalax continued to inquire about Maguire's life. What did you love so much that was taken from you? What, Mr. I would like to feel my hands once more, gripping the hilt of a sword. To feel the breeze on my chest when I run. To hear my own voice, my own laugh once more. To feel the beating of my heart in the rush of battle as I defend my people. Why did you fight them? I saw the world my ancestors had built, and I saw the world the elves wanted to build. Decided I'd rather die for ours than live in theirs. Their world was one of greed and speed. Once difference was a virtue, like colourful threads in a tapestry. Now they have made it shameful, inefficient, as though it is the speed of the loom that matters most. Their lives are long, but they have no time to wonder, to wait to watch something grow into what it is meant to be. Never has a people been so deft at producing a blanket, yet unconcerned with whether their neighbors are warm. It occurs to me, O Venerable One, that we are missing the last ingredient. What? We have everything on the recipe. The skull. Do you have any skulls I might drink from? Maguire took the goblet. Inside was a handful of additional quills for the potion. Thank you. Words cannot express. It may be a comfort now, but that one of my kin even considered your request as a great credit to the justice of your cause. I understand now why this But you still won't. I can't. Might I ask about this oath you took? What do you need to know? Why did you make it? The taking. One life you could spare many others. I do not possess anything near such power. Suffering and killing will go on no matter what I do. And even if I rid you of your enemies, do you think the wolf will no longer slay the fox? Shall I kill all the wolves? And then what? Will the foxes not go to the rabbit? 
Those are beasts. I'm talking about saving people who love and have dreams and make art and... How can we even know what is in the rabbit's heart? Do the tree folk not justify their violence by saying you are not as sophisticated as they? But they're wrong! You may think it obvious that you are similar to a rabbit. But that is because a riveting and a rabbit need to know different things. That may be. You may be right that there shall always be a predator of prey. And that is the law of nature. But the nature of the elves is invasive to the nature of this land. Their wars are slaughters, not skirmishes. They... Maguire looked at the dragon for a moment and smiled. You are a great and wise dragon, venerable one, who has chosen not to take a life to feed. But most of your kin do not take such a vow, and live as the greatest predator of the land, do they not? Imagine if there were hundreds of thousands of dragons. If there were not enough great bulls or bears or horses to feed them. If they ate their way through wolves and foxes alike. Would that be mere nature? The dragon looked at Maguire, clearly uncertain about how to react to the comparison. Their throat tightened and briefly Maguire worried he might have made a terrible mistake. Nature corrects. Dragon's lips quirked around the edges. Once and Future Nerd is directed by Christian T. Kelly Madeira. It is created and executive produced by Zach Glass and Christian T. Kelly Madeira, and co-executive produced by Jess Kelly Madeira. Associate producers are Susan Degnan and Alex Story. It is performed by... Rhiannon Angel. Garrett Arman. Dan Dobransky. Anya Gibeon. Ian Harkins. Aaron Lanham. All Notice. Anna O'Daniel. April Ortiz. Frank Quares. Julie Reed. Regina Renee Russell. Gregory M. Schultz. David Sylvester Wolf. Editing by Jim Banton. Foley, sound design and post-production mixing by Edward Bush. Tom Lee is our musical director and lead composer, with additional scoring by Chris Montalvo. 
for more, visit onceandfuturenerd.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr or Reddit. <laughs>